You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful, dear listeners, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Peace and blessings of Allah be with you. My name is Shahir Muni Ahmed, and you are listening live to another episode of Faithful Show. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. And if you know, the Voice of Islam Radio is presenting true and beautiful teachings of Islam. And it's telling us why Islam can also integrate in this Western society. I'm joined here with my brother Mubaris Amini Mubaris. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. How are you doing today? Wa alaikum assalam, Shahid brother. I am good, alhamdulillah. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you. I'm just looking outside. Uh, it's a beautiful, as I said, normally say, Wimbledon weather today. Yeah. Uh, and I hope it stays uh, for the next or for uh, three days as well. Yeah, hopefully it will be. And especially with um, the the annual convention of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Jamaat, the Jalsa Salana right, yeah. UK coming, uh, I'm pretty sure we all are looking forward to the Good weather, and uh, as long as it doesn't rain or pour down on us. Um, but you know, if God wills, it will all go well. I mean, you just mentioned the gathering, one of the largest Muslim gatherings here in, here in Britain. Yes, indeed. And I, I know, you know, I know I was trying to remember back, I had like all this, I'm always very excited, you know, to go to, the, go to those gathering, you know, to see, you know, people from different backgrounds. This is how the community actually is and it, you see people from the African background from from the South American and from the South Asian and of course from the uh, Western background as well and then you work together with these people and then you have some kind of relationship like friendly relationship with them as well yeah. and, uh, and this is how you come to know each other this is how you know this is how my memories are and of course the best thing about everything is yeah well in fact um, the the there's there's a bit of history to the Jalsa Salana isn't there Shahil um, uh, of course of course of course it's a big history I mean uh, if you just remember uh, imagine you know the first Jalsa Salana I remember the attendants were um, well, above 100 not above under 100 yeah and yeah. now if you look the attendants now only here in the UK we have is about 40,000 and this convention is not only in the UK we have the same convention also in Canada where the Prime Minister even came to visit that yeah exactly Trudeau. and then we have the same convention also in Germany in Nirvana in America in different parts of the world unfortunately we are allowed to have it in Pakistan but we would have more than 100,000 attendees attendees yeah but Anyhow, I mean, the best thing is that we are still connected with MTA, with the Muslim Television, uh, of Muslim Television Ahmadiyya, it's our uh, own channel, which will broadcast everything. And if you're listening, if you want to know, if you want to see, if you want to see that spirituality we are talking about, if you want to see that atmosphere, if you want to listen to the speeches, or if you want to learn more about Islam, from Friday to Sunday, the um, uh, MTA will broadcast the whole gathering. You can watch it on YouTube as well. Spe- there will be speeches, amazing speeches from amazing scholars. And of course, there will be speeches from our head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness, Hazim Nizam, Suleyman, Ayyad, Mayala, Bishawfa, where you can listen and where you can 
uh, enjoy I mean, with the whole family and you can learn more about uh, Islam. And um, why is, uh, people, I, I was listening, you know, um, people from different countries are coming. Now, last year we had a very small gathering because... Yeah. Due to uh, COVID and all the restrictions. Because of COVID, I mean, we couldn't do that before. And uh, a small, uh, only three people from the UK were allowed to come. And now people are coming from everywhere, like um, from Germany, from America, even from uh, Africa. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's going to be from, a very yeah, huge... from South huge, Asia, yeah. Yeah, and that's going to be a very huge um, gathering. And uh, I'm just looking forward to see all my... All these People, but you know, I was listening to one of the interviews they showed on YouTube, and I saw one of the people how emotional they get. Yeah. They're seeing the Caliph after so many years again. You know, the pandemic shifted uh, away to meet or to see the Caliph live. Now, now again, we have the opportunity to go and to pray behind him. And it's a huge difference, yeah. you know, when yeah. you pray behind the Caliph. And it's not just only for, for us who um reside in the uk but there are many more people that have um you know migrated to the uk in the last uh, couple of years that haven't ever experienced um what jalsa salana uk is exactly. actually all about so it's going to be their first jalsa salana it's going to be the first jalsa salana for many of um uh you know children uh, covid covid babies basically and even for 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 the youth that didn't remember that that, that don't remember how the previous jilsas were, they're going to be getting a new new taste of it as well. And um, if God wills, everything will go well. And um, you know we can pray that that may Allah continue to to um, shower His blessings upon this this um, this gathering. No, exactly. I mean, especially when you mentioned these people, you know, are coming for the first time. I myself have a guest here in my house. Will join the Jasa Sana for the first time, and he's so excited to see everything. Yeah, how it is because you know they have they've seen it from the television, and now they want to see it to be a part of it and to be part of the history. You know, it's amazing. You know, um, I just you know, when you were talking, I was just it reminded me that when I was a child, um, mm. you know, that we have uh, the Elizabeth, we have to run this whole gathering, we have few volunteers, workers who are have, doing certain duties. And I remember when I was a child, I, I was doing one, uh, I, I was volunteering myself as well for a duty, for a work. And I was just putting water to the listeners who were sitting in a tent. And if you look into television, you will see these small children you know, who will supply water to other people. And you know, why this is actually one of my first duties I have done and doing the jalsa, and of course when I got old, I had other duties as well. Um, where I wanted myself, but you know, again, we were just talking about jalsa, um, about the gathering. I have so many members are coming now, and you know, from Friday, from tomorrow on, new members will join as well. So it is a very big excitement, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, it's going to be very amazing. We we'll start with, of course, with the Friday prayer. And here again, dear listeners, you can listen. You can listen to that. You can be a part of this gathering as well. You can join any time on MTA Online One, which is the YouTube channel of our community. 
everything will be broadcast live. And it's very amazing how, you know, behind the camera, how everything is working as well. It's, it's I mean, to, to run, a, uh, you know, a big convention with more than 40 12 faithful members, it's amazing. And um, the, as uh, Mubaris has mentioned as well, there will be members who never joined this convention before. And they will going to be there for the first time as well. But is the total attendance of the first day of was 75 only. Yes, yes, indeed. And this uh, this was maybe um, in 1891. 1891, indeed. In a small village, at that time it uh, was a village, now it's a town called Guardian in Punjab, India. And 75 only, and now we have, I mean, it has increased 50,000, and the number is still increasing. Yeah. So, yeah, it's 50,000, 40,000, but the number is still increasing. And uh, a lot of people have joined as well, you know, the community from different backgrounds at that time. And, you know, just imagine, at that time, a small village in Cardian, no one knows the name of, would know the name of Cardian. And then, uh, and from there, this gathering would start, and now it's happening everywhere. And, yeah. uh, um, and this is, you know, I think one of the listeners, because a lot of people have stopped, tried to stop that gathering. Unfortunately, we are not allowed to do it in Pakistan, but in other countries, we are allowed to do so. And, you know, this is amazing that still it is happening, this yeah. gathering, and still yeah. people are coming and joining. And this is one sign that even if the enemy house may. It doesn't matter how strong it is. How, even if the country stands up against that community, yeah. God always opens more doors for us, isn't it? Yeah. Am I not, not right, everybody? You this are is right. what we have seen. Yeah. And, and, and obviously there's there's more to the annual uh, convention, the Jalsa Salana, um, than meets to the eye, basically. Um, this, obviously, as as Shail's mentioned, that this, com- this convention was established by the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the Promised Messiah, uh, Hazrat Bizar Ghulam Ahmad, um, peace, peace be upon him. And he presented four main purposes of this this con- convention. Um, first one being to increase one's communion with, with Allah the, the, the Almighty. Uh, number two, to pray for those brothers who have passed away. Number three, to meet new members and increase in brotherhood. And number four, to gain and increase in knowledge. Now, these four principal purpose, uh, purposes uh, presented by the, the Promised Messiah are being fulfilled in every aspect of, of the annual convention, the Jalsa Salana. And obviously, the, the, the obvious purpose of increasing one's communion with Allah the Almighty, you know, with, with the entire schedule revolving around the five daily prayers, um, a person inevitably finds himself in a um, spiritually uplifting atmosphere, and and I'm pretty sure uh, Shahil is a um, you know an eyewitness to to, the, to that himself as well. I mean, even I am, and and there are many more out there that that um, say the same. No, exactly. I mean, as you said, there are many many more people who will agree with you, dear listeners. Um, as I said, it's a huge gathering. You can see how much we are excited. Uh, to um, to see or to join this gathering again, um, you can do so as well. I'm I'm MTI Online One uh, on YouTube. Uh, everything will be broadcast live. If you don't have time 
watching it live. You can also do watch the recording. Mubaris, um, um, I believe we will go off for a small um, short uh, break. And after that, Mubaris, before we go, can you just tell us, tell us what is the next segment or what's the first segment of the show? So, Shail, the, the first segment is helping the homeless during the heat wave, um, which uh, is a very interesting topic. Um, and we'll obviously come back after the break to, to listen to that. And the second segment is UN criticized for for, for poor quality aid to Yemen. Well, so the listen is going to be very interesting and for those of us very interested guests. So do us a favor, stay tuned with us. We'll be back after a short break. Writings of the Promised Messiah, alayhi When you stand up in prayer, you should know it for certain that your God has the power to do all that He wills. Then your prayer will be accepted and you will behold the wonders of God's power that we have beheld. Our testimony is based on seeing and is not a mere tale. How should the supplication of a person be accepted? And how should he have the courage to pray at the time of great difficulties when according to him, he is opposed by the law of nature, unless he believes that God has power over everything. You should not be like that. Your God is one who has suspended numberless stars without any support and who has created heaven and earth from nothing. And would you think so ill of him as to imagine that your objective is beyond his power? Such thinking will frustrate you. Our God possesses numberless wonders, but only those observe them who become wholly His with certainty and fidelity. He does not disclose His powers to those who do not believe in His powers and are not faithful to Him. Writings of the Promised Messiah When a hot-tempered person is provoked and punishes a child, he takes on the role of an enemy in the stress of his anger and imposes punishment far in excess of the wrong which has been done. An individual with self-respect and control over himself, who is also forbearing and dignified, has the right to correct a child to a certain extent as the occasion demands or seek to guide the child. But a wrathful and hot-headed person who is easily provoked is not fit to be a guardian of children. I wish that instead of punishing children, parents would have recourse to prayer and should make it a habit to supplicate earnestly for their children, for the supplications of parents on behalf of their children meet with special acceptance. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful, dear listeners, welcome back. You're listening to The Breakfast Show. My name is Shabmin Ahmed, and I'm joined here with my brother Mubaris. And as you know, Mubaris, just before we went to the break, has introduced the two to- uh, topics we have. The first topic is that helping the homeless during the heat wave. Mubaris, I think that heat wave was something different this time. Uh, uh, yeah. 40 degrees, especially here in London, and uh, the vans were running 24 hours, and still I was sweating 24 hours as well. Yeah. Uh, so you could see how much, I mean, how hot the weather was at the time, and especially now, if you look into the for those people who were living outside the street, how difficult it would be for them. Uh, so, 
what is just for our listeners if you can tell us the gist of the story well Shail, um summer is at its peak around mm-hmm. us we see people following various guidelines on how to look after our well-being in the hot weather this includes drinking water finding shade where possible and working less hours however who has thought on how the homeless are facing this weather during winter many people step towards helping the homeless however let's not forget that the homeless are equally in need and vulnerable during the hot weather we need to be prepared for the hot weather and consider the risks that are included for example people dying due to heat so uh, no um exactly you know as i said i was just here my house and he was telling me when he just called person from pakistan right from Karachi, and he was telling me that um in pakistan it was even when uh, much sometimes even more hot uh, hotter than it was here in the during the weekend but still if someone can't you know if someone is not adjust to that heat it can be very difficult to yeah. survive as well especially for the homeless people and you, know, you just said very beautifully that you know homeless have the same right as well and uh, they are equally in need and vulnerable during the hot weather hmm. so it is very good to know that we had helpers who came and who looked after these people these very vulnerable people but um nobody's there are maybe very very pretty much challenges to homeless people face in each weather not only in the summer weather yeah yeah in- uh, indeed um you know people sleeping um rough are especially vulnerable to the heat being more likely to suffer from you know stuff like mental issues um mm-hmm. chronic health conditions and and substance abuse problems you know Shahil, the the mayor of London, um, Sadiq Khan, he said, mm. this ongoing heat wave could be dangerous for anyone. But for people sleeping rough, there are additional risks. That is why City Hall is working with London's boroughs to prioritise support for some of our most vulnerable Londoners. Across the capital, we are taking action to assist these, those forced to sleep rough in these extremely high temperatures by increasing welfare checks, providing plenty of water and sunscreen and ensuring people sleeping rough know where to access cool spaces and water fountains as ever london's councils and charities will be working hard this week to support those sleeping rough in our city on behalf of all londoners i thank them for their tireless efforts so shahil um you know ex- exposure to to hotter than average conditions can also result in a in a slow of health issues including heat exhaustion heat stroke and hypothermia um a a spokesperson for for crisis told the independent being homeless during a heat wave can be extremely stressful and bad for people's health as it can be challenging to find shelter away from the heat people living on the street during hot weather are at greater risk of sunburn, dehydration and heat exhaustion. Oh, you, you just mentioned you think in um sunburn or something, you know, we we try to stay away, we try to stay from the sunburn or from dehydration, we try to drink a lot of water, but even then, you know, if we drink like let's say 2 liter, we think it's still less and then, you know, heat exhaustion as well. It's very difficult, it's very um terrifying and yeah. we I, I'm I'm the one, you know, who's the 
if we've got a shelter as well. Now, if you look into those people who are living in the street without shelter, that is something different. This is something very difficult. And we're just talking about the summer weather. We're not talking about the winter, winter weather, which is also very difficult to survive. Yeah, so yeah, in this sense, you, you can see here that how important it is to look after these vulnerable people as well. That You know, it's a beautiful saying of the early possible economy, that you are not a believe until you have you are designing the same for your brother what you desire for yourself as well. Yeah, yeah. But what, is, what I've seen is that, especially about homeless people, um, I've seen, maybe I'm wrong, hopefully I'm wrong, but I've felt that they are not considered, they're all considered as low, right? low status people. The rights were never, never given to them by some people and they always looked in a mean way, to, like, they always looked to them in a mean way, like, they are not part of our society and they don't want to be part of our society. It, 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 um, this is something I have. It's a, the, I, mean, I believe there are a few misconceptions about uh, homeless people as well, dear listeners. Listen, we have, before we carry on, I'm very delighted to announce that we have uh, our first guest for the show. Can you introduce our first guest, please? Yes, indeed. Um, our first guest today is Mick Clark. Um, he is the chief executive of The Passage. Now, for those who don't know uh, The Passage, The Passage was established in 1980 in response to the number of people sleeping on the streets in Westminster. Since that time, The Passage has helped over 100,000 people by providing access to a range of services, including accommodation and employment support, and giving people a place they call home. The mission of the passage is to provide resources which encourage, inspire and challenge people who have experienced homelessness to transform their lives. The passage does this by helping by, by being a leading provider of services, offering primary services, housing advice, health services and employment and training opportunities. The passage also provides accommodation services, homelessness prevention schemes and works to end modern slavery within the homelessness community. Um, Mick Clark, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Nice to be here. Very good. Thank you. And nice to have you too. Um, Mick Clark started his career in the voluntary sector as a youth worker and has worked in the homelessness sector since 1995. Starting as a volunteer, he then worked as a project worker in hostels and then moved into the area of employment and training after several years as head of services of a national UK charity. Mick moved to the passage as Deputy Chief Executive in 2006 and in January 2009 was appointed Chief Executive of the passage. Mick has a proven uh, track record in, in change management and leadership, strategic planning and development, fundraising and communication across diverse sectors including community groups, corporates and central and local government. Mick has a postgraduate, postgraduate degree in management from City University, is a member of the Anti-Slavery Commissioner's Advisory Panel and has carried out international consultancy work for the Home Office. Mick, the, my, my, my first question for you is, is for the benefit of our listeners. Um, could you sum up uh, the mission and the values of, of, of the passage? Yeah, I, I think you've you've done a great summary in terms of a lot of the stuff that we do. But but in a nutshell, our vision is is of a society where homelessness no longer exists, and and everyone has 
a place to call home. And we we do that by preventing people becoming street homeless in the first place, because prevention is always better than, than cure. For those that are on the streets, helping them off the streets as quickly as possible and helping them sustain um, staying off the streets, but also advocating for people, often people who feel that they don't have any voice in society and looking at how we can can give them that voice and, and bring about systemic change. And we do that in a number of different ways through day services, prevention services, residential services, many of which you've, you've mentioned. Hmm. Well, that's what it's really amazing um, about passage and the work you're actually doing. Uh, but I, we were just talking about disease grave and uh, how difficult it would be for the homeless people. Can you just tell us um, what challenges they had to face during that heat wave? Yeah, I think, um, and this is something that, that we deal with every every summer, really. People often think of, of winter time being a terrible time, and of course it is if you're on the streets, but but being on the streets at any time is, is awful. Mm. But when it gets very hot, it becomes, in the same way when it gets very cold, it becomes um, life-threatening. But this was, was really difficult, those particularly uh, two or three days, one day when it got over 40 degrees in, in, in central London. And so the challenges that people will be facing if they don't have shelter is, you know, obviously sunburn, um, sunstroke, dehydration, etc., so um, you mentioned the mayor's statement there, um, and one of the we, we work with many partners, be they statutory or be they voluntary sector, uh, and so it was great to be working uh, across the different sectors to try and get as many people off the streets and into the safety of, of shade, uh, giving them access to water, etc. Um, so it was it was a real challenge, but those are the type of things that people will be facing if they're on the streets in extreme heat, um, sunstroke, sunburn, and just you know terrible dehydration. So, Mike, just one question: um, Can you tell me how exactly, uh, approximately, how many people are living on the street? I think it varies. Yeah, it varies in terms of they do um, counts in terms of looking at number in terms of, of, of London um, mm-hmm. we would see in terms of average coming through uh, our doors uh, on, a, on a normal day say in our, our resident um, our uh, day services we would see probably up to about a hundred people coming through um, I think the thing that really always strikes me is how easy it is to become street homeless sometimes okay. we have stereotypes um, mm-hmm. and actually it's frighteningly easy to end up uh, if you don't have the support networks that perhaps some of us may take for granted around you, frighteningly mm. easy. So one of the most important things for us is in terms of to, to really act quickly and with urgency. And of course, with the hot weather, that's that's amplified even more because uh, we want people off those streets and, and into safety. One, one of the things that, that I'd, I'd like to say is it's quite striking with we're talking about the hot weather and the emergency response that's that's required there and we often have this conversation during cold weather as well mm-hmm. but for mm-hmm. me for me it's it always brings home to me that how appalling it is that in 21st century britain we're having these conversations you know in 21st century britain street homelessness just shouldn't exist really mm-hmm. and so okay. we 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 need that emergency 
call to arms, call to action, mm-hmm. not just when it's hot, not just when it's cold, but every single day, because it's just wrong that in 21st century Britain, anybody has to be on the streets. Indeed. No, you're exactly, indeed. And just one thing, because you, meant, you also mentioned winter weather. Uh, what challenges do they face during the winter weather? In the winter weather, well, again, it becomes ultimately life-threatening. So um, in terms of hypothermia, um, people actually, you know, getting um, becoming literally life-threatening in terms of there and, and, and fear of, of, of death because of this. Um but also just in terms of actually the the general deterioration in in health, um, you know, any of us know if we've been if it's been very cold and we haven't perhaps got the right clothes on, etc. You know, you very quickly start feeling it in your bones. Now, you imagine being on the streets for 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 several weeks in those kind of conditions. It's just not good for you. So, at the most extreme, uh, the cold can kill you. Um, but actually, uh, there's a cumulative effect as well because it takes its toll because we're not meant to be outside um, in cold weather like that. Mm-hmm. So how is it that you, how, how did you help them? So how did you help them in, in, in July and how is it that you help them in, in, in the winters as well? There's um, uh, something that's called a severe weather protocol, which traditionally is, is, is used in, in the cold weather months. But increasingly, uh, as as we get more of this hot weather, it's been used more and more in the summer. Mm. And that's essentially looking at local authorities. You mentioned the mayor's office coordinating with charities to actually find uh, open extra bed spaces, extra places. So traditionally in the winter, it will be looking at more bed spaces. So emergency bed spaces so people can come off the streets um, and get some respite. And in the hot weather, certainly thinking about the passage, it's trying to encourage more and more people to utilise um, our day services uh, and perhaps keeping them open a little bit longer um, because particularly during the, the hours when it was very, very warm. So it's essentially looking at that that kind of severe weather protocol, as we call it, making bed spaces available, making access to spaces in the summer where people can get um get into the shade, get water, etc. Uh, and also, really importantly, get to see medical professionals. Um, and actually, sometimes, you know, someone that's coming because of an emergency situation, that may be their first route coming off the street for good. So there's, there's always opportunities uh, with these emergency situations as well. Um, for these emergency situations, where are you guys um, located for the benefit of our listeners as well? So we, we operate mainly in, in Westminster. So we have a, uh, uh, a number of our, our day services operating in the heart of Westminster around Victoria. We do a number of residential projects uh, across Westminster as well. Okay, brilliant. Um, well, Mick, with more dry weather expected to hit the UK, do you have a, a plan in place on how you can quickly and, and effectively provide support to those who are suffering? And is there anything that you can and you would like to improve on from 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 the last time? Yeah, I mean, thankfully, I mean, on the on your last point there about improve, you can always get better. So, um, and that's one of our mantras, really, in terms of that. So, you know, you can always look at mm. at getting better. The the, the the main thing for us is really um, how we can get as, as many people as possible in those emergency situations off the streets. 
<clears throat> but we have the protocols in place. They can be active very quickly. The temperatures are monitored. And we tend to know both in terms of cold weather or hot weather with the forecast when it's going to get potentially life-threatening. So we're able to move not just ourselves, but uh, our partners, as I say, other charities uh, and other people working in uh, local government are able to move very quickly on that. So, yes, if we have challenging temperatures like we saw in the last couple of weeks, we're uh -huh. able to move very quickly. So, um, just for our listeners, as we're going to be interested or important as well to know that how can we basically help homeless people, and especially in these extreme weather? Yeah, really good question. I think there's a few things really. So, so firstly, if you see somebody who looks like they need urgent medical attention, it's the same as if you saw any member of the public that was in um, requiring uh, urgent medical attention, dial 999. Um, being able to, for perhaps someone who uh, doesn't require urgent medical attention, but you know doesn't look great or is in, 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 the, in the sun, uh, perhaps encouraging them to um, uh, go to a local homelessness charity. Um, there's also a great website called Streetlink. So that's just um, streetlink.org.uk. And if you're concerned about someone on the street, not just in hot weather or cold weather, but at any time, you can actually go on that website to raise concerns to make sure they get help. And of course, just giving someone a bottle of water um, treating mm. them like like a human being, like you'd like to be treated, perhaps giving exactly. some sun cream. Um, but also as well, I just encourage people generally, if if they want to get involved, there are so many uh, charities out there providing great work, and uh, we always we always think of philanthropy as uh, needing to have lots of money and everything. But you, you you can be a philanthropist with your time. Everybody can do that. So. You know, whether it's looking at the hot weather or the cold weather or just generally wanting to make a contribution, I just encourage people to get involved in, in one of their local charities, volunteer, give their time. Um, you get so much back by doing that. No, exactly right with that. Uh, Mick, thank you for joining the breakfast show today. Um, I wish you all the best for the future and, uh, of course, with you uh, with the passage as well. Lovely. Thanks so much for your time. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. You just listened um, to Mick Clark and how he has said why it's important to help our fellow human beings, especially those who are living on the streets, to help them to come out from that difficulty, to give them shelter. And dear listeners, for information, um, the mosque is also a place of shelter. It is giving shelter to those people in need, especially in these very difficult times. And as he said, I mean, this is one thing we have. It's very important as well that we have these places, no bias. People can go where they know we have a safe place for to live as well. But as you know, also as Nick has said, that we can contribute as public, as a public, you know, as well, to go out to give them a cold bottle of water to survive, to give them maybe a hat to survive, maybe something, you know, which will make you happy as well and which will help them to survive this very extreme heat wave we had recently and we don't know how the weather will be in the next month uh, it's, uh, it's going to be hot as well so the listeners as Mick has said these are you know very good guidelines uh, very good guidelines to help people in difficult times but you know in Bidas, um I just had before 
there are some misconceptions people have about homeless people. Yeah, yeah, indeed. I mean, and I mean, sorry, yes. I mean, people because you know, I'm sorry, but sometimes I think, and then uh, yeah, also said it's very easy to become a homeless person. Um, and he also mentioned uh, with uh, addiction and about mental health issues. Yeah, well, um, you know, mental health issues. Uh, can contribute to homelessness around 80% of of homelessness uh, of 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 homeless people have have mental health uh, health problems however that adequate support must therefore include treatment within these uh, areas but these facts often obscure a more complex reality and lead to homeless persons being stereotyped as as threatening and dangerous However, shall uh, ranging from relationship breakdown to communication barriers, they can cr- cont- contribute to an, an individual becoming hom- homeless, and it is usually a combination of many of these at once. You know, consider an individual leaving an abusive relationship, who is also new to a, a particular area, perhaps not speaking the the local language very well, or simply uh-huh. lacking a support network. or awareness of of community resources that person would be at an increased risk of becoming homeless due to the way those individual risk factors interact another thing to keep in mind is that addiction and poor mental health are just as as often uh, an effect of being homeless as a cause indeed these things are in some ways an inevitable response to the incredible stress that homelessness creates these problems can then you know reinforce themselves in a in a vicious cycle nevertheless when organizations you know when they provide material support and a um you know a structure to to the lives of of homeless people the cycle can gradually you know it, it can it can be broken down no you true that um but both homeless people um are they only those who are living on the street but are also those who have temporary shelters um interestingly shahil there are um figures that fail to account for the you know the hidden homeless mm-hmm. those persons without permanent um secure housing who are sleeping in in friends houses you know hostels rent rooms and other such arrangements you know this mistaken impression also uh, distorts the the demographics of of homelessness as rough sleepers are are more likely to be male and older than the overall homeless population if we can recognize the areas of of hidden homelessness we can often uh, you know resolve problems before they get worse no you to with that uh it uh, you know um as mikas also mentioned that um there's something we can do as well to have uh, you know people um you know one thing is of course to be you know, to be kind to people and with that a lot of things come into that as well mm. to, uh, to, to 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 i mean to help them to give them something they need um 
it is, you know, it's a challenge basically in this society, a big challenge we have in the society. We listeners, um, we are going now for a short break. Uh, do us a favor, um, stay in tune with the voice of Islam Radio. Send it to Mr. Baker's show. We will be back after that and we will discuss this also from the Islamic perspective what Islam says about that and what guidelines Islam basically gives to overcome that big problem about homeless people, how to help them, and how to be there for them. So they do have a very statue with the voice of somebody we will back after the show. Thank you. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful, you listeners, welcome back to the breakfast show. You're listening to the voice of Islam radio. My name is Shahim Ahmed, and I'm joined here with my brother, Mubaris Amini. Mubaris, um, we were just talking uh, about homeless people and about why homeless people should be considered as human beings as well and why we should help them. Um, there are so many things we can do, we can help them as well. And especially, you know, Islam is a kind of a guidance as well that how to help them and how, what to do with them yes indeed um you know we we see that the holy quran um teaches us about how to uh help the needy and then there are sayings and and um incidents from the prophet of of islam um on on how he donated and and supported the homeless you know i, I mean uh, sorry but you just played one pillar as well where he was it was into when he was a child, he lost his parents, and then his uncle would look after him. And then how he, when he grew old, how he looked after the son of his uncles as well. And after so much loss, I mean, you know, he was a person in need as well, but he would look after other people as well. Uh, he's a great example for that as well. Dear listeners, um, we will discuss this for the most part, but right now we have a very important guest with us. We have Fiona Colley with us, who is the Director of Social Change of Homeless Link. Uh, homeless Link is a national membership charity for organizations working directly with people who become homeless in England. Homeless Link works to make service better and campaigns for policy change that will help end, uh, that will help end homelessness. That's very important. Um, Fiona, uh, welcome and good morning and welcome to the breakfast show. Sorry. Good morning. Thank you very much for having us on. Um, you know, for, for the benefit of our, of our listeners, uh, if you could explain the work that Homeless Link does. Mm. Absolutely. As you mentioned, we are a membership body for homelessness charities and organisations. We've got about 900 members all across England working in every area of the country. And that ranges from big charities you'll have heard of, like Crisis and Shelter, but down to smaller organisations faith groups, community groups who are running night shelters or day centres, looking, all of them, to end homelessness. And we support our members to learn from each other. We provide training and advice and guidance to try to improve homelessness services. But really importantly, we also listen to our members across the country from the front line and work with them to be a strong national voice on the issues that are causing homelessness and the problems in systems locally and nationally that are standing in the way of ending homelessness. Thank you. Um, Fiona, what challenges did um, homeless people face during the heat wave in July and how serious were they? Oh, it's a really, really important question. Um, the heat wave was potentially deadly. 
Uh, it was dangerous for anyone. Mm. But for people without a home, they were really particularly vulnerable. There's a number of reasons for that. Um, some of those are fairly obvious. They might struggle to find somewhere cool to get out the heat, to have a cold shower. They could have limited access to water. And they might be carrying around bedding and extra layers with them. Mm. But I think what is perhaps a little less obvious is that it's also the case that people who are homeless are far far more likely to be in poorer health than most of us of a similar age. Um, It's hard life uh, and people are also all too often uh, experiencing poor mental health uh, or uh, substance misuse. And the research shows that um, people who are sleeping rough uh, may well have a frailty level that you would more commonly see in someone in their 70s or 80s. Hmm. So extremely vulnerable. So we often think about the dangers of cold weather and the snow or the rain or the wind, but a heat wave and hot weather can be just as deadly, if not more so. Hmm. Yes, indeed, indeed. And how how was it that you helped them with these hmm. these challenges then? Well, our our members across the country stepped up, as always. Uh, There were lots of extra daytime shifts, lots of uh, people working for those organisations, but also huge numbers of volunteers going out to find people, offering water and sun cream, helping them to find cool places where they would be welcome uh, to come and get out of the heat. And just so many public authorities, uh, those community and faith groups, and also businesses, stepped up, opening up spaces people could go to, finding emergency accommodation, generously giving charities donations of water and sun cream. And we all really tried to work hard to get the message out about how dangerous the situation was and how the public could help too. Um, There's uh, a great app and website called Streetlink that we helped to run. uh, And that is a way that the public, when they saw somebody who needed help, uh, could make an alert through the website and enable um, support workers to go out and find someone and get them to that help. No, amazing. Uh, street link, I will remember that, definitely. Mm. Um, well, I've not, I'm pretty sure that you are trying to improve the, the service for future, uh, for the future for homeless people as well. Um, but what actions are you planning to take to ensure that homeless don't feel overlooked? especially in, you know, in this very extreme uh, weather conditions. Yeah, I mean, due to climate change, heat waves are just becoming more and more common. And some of the focus that we have um, given in the past, planning for winter, is something now that we need to be doing all year round. Uh, the extra accommodation and support that we, we do put in place for the winter, we need to have just the same sort of um, offer in place for the summer but i mean it's important to say that it's never safe or acceptable for somebody Mm -hmm. to be sleeping on our streets Uh, and what we saw during the pandemic is that it's very possible to end rough sleeping in particular to bring everyone in off the streets which is what happened uh people came into hotels or to um, other places of safe accommodation and the way that people were helped then was really successful not just in finding them a bed for the night and short-term accommodation, but in working with people to help them to move on to secure homes. And now as um, you know, we move on and we learn to live with COVID, we need to learn from what was good about that and the way that we worked. So a really good example 
uh, of that is the work that we are doing at the moment with the government uh, on a new grant program uh, trans to help transform night shelters. So traditionally, uh, in emergency uh, weather situations, whether that's winter or summer, um, lots of spaces would open up uh, as a night shelter for a few nights, a, a large hall, but often communal sleeping spaces, rows of beds, uh, and a lot of people, to be honest, didn't like that. Uh, you know, they they'd be on the streets or a bed on a or bed or being on the floor in a hall. Uh, it wasn't something that offered people dignity or privacy or security, which is what people want and need. So we're now running a grants program funded by government um, to give the opportunities for charities and local community groups to transform the sort of offer they can give people from those big communal spaces to offering people a, a single room, a single occupancy room, and something that can be a stable stepping stone from which a journey begins. So not a bed for a night, but a pathway towards a home. So I really hope that we can change the way that we approach uh, helping people um, because we can do it. We can end homelessness. We saw that we did do it. Uh, at least rough sleeping, we could move people out of the streets into accommodation and then on to a home. Um, so I think that's a big challenge for us over the next few years. The current government's made a commitment to end rough sleeping. I think we can go beyond that. Um, but I, I'm really optimistic that by working together across the charitable sector, all the community groups, the faith groups, and bringing government fully on board, that we really can end homelessness. We're not a poor country. I know these are tough times mm. uh, for for everyone, that public finances aren't great, but it is a shocking situation to see somebody without a home living on the streets in this country. And I think we should remain completely determined. Uh, it's unacceptable and we need to end that. No, you're right with that. It is unacceptable. Fiona, um, thank you for joining. Um, I wish you all the best uh, with your tasks we have to end homelessness and also for the future. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Dear listeners, uh, if you want to help, if you want to help these things to come to an end, if you want to help the society, and if you want to help these people who are very vulnerable, you can do so. You can do any time. Yes, listen to those two very important interviews where make entry on a game of guidelines to help to, uh, these people and one important thing is also smile. There's something I want to introduce as well because the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, he would use to smile as well. And smile sometimes brings, you know, happiness as well. Brings uh, a feeling of comfort as well. And uh, the practice of the Holy Prophet was he would always smile. He, he had suffered so many times in his life as well. He has lost so many beloved people as well. And still, I mean, he was, um, if you look into his, uh, what he used to have, he was wealthy as well, but he still would smile all the time as well. So this is one thing we can do as well. Be nice to people, as he used to be as well. He would look after his fellow human beings as well. He would look after his neighbors as well. This is one thing we can do as well. And uh, I remember he said that if you cook food and make sure that you could make extend the food for your neighbors as well. This is one way we can help each other as well. And of course, they give food to those people who are very vulnerable, to homeless people who are living in the streets, to help them to be kind with them, and especially in this very extreme weather, to be there for them. 
Boris, of course, there are more, more and more Islamic guidelines yes, regarding yes. this matter. Indeed, indeed, there are. And obviously, um, we, I would like to mention that in the in the Holy Quran, uh, Allah the Almighty, He states in chapter 2, verse 84, You shall worship nothing but Allah and show kindness to parents and to kindred and orphans and the poor, and speak to men kindly and observe prayer and pay the zakat. Then you turned away in aversion except a few of you. Now, shall from this, um, you know, in the same category where, uh, you know, dear listeners, that where, where Allah the Exalted, He is um, telling mankind to show kindness to, to the parents and to uh, kindred, He's also added orphans and the poor into the same category to say that mm-hmm. everybody is at the same level and that you should love everybody equally, right? We we have a few people, we have our parents, we have our loved ones who we, who we hold dear. But we should also hold dear those people that are in need at the same time. The the holy prophet of of Islam, I like to you know he 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 is it's a saying of his, it's in hadith that I am with the weak because aiding the weak and poor is the means of reaching Allah the Almighty. Now, that is very very you know that that, that that's a very um a, a, a strong it's got a strong meaning behind it that you know how we have ways of attaining uh, the pleasure of, of, of our Lord, of Allah the Almighty. One of the measures of, of seeking His pleasure is to to aid uh, the weak and poor people. And if anybody is, is in, in, in true hunt of, of attaining the pleasure of, of Allah the Almighty, then this is one of the ways that you will need to pursue to, to gain that. You will need to be giving um, alms and charity to... Uh, for the for the needy and for the homeless to look after them, right? Um, mm. uh, the the promised Messiah, the the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, uh, he states that serving humanity is itself a form of worship of Allah. Uh, again, that that shows that how looking after the people of of Allah the Almighty and the people in need, you know, it it brings you closer to your to your to the Creator of 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 the world. No, you're right with that because uh, he said this is one one good step to do to come closer to his creator, which is you know the purpose of our life. And you know Islam has said that you know, there are two rights given to certain people. One right is given to only one person, which is Allah, to fulfill His right, yes, to worship Him and to mm-hmm. listen to Him, to follow His teachings. And then the other right is given to His given to His creation. To look after his creation, to you know, to look after mankind. And the Holy Prophet peace be upon him. He was known as Rahmatul Alamin. This is how he is described in the Holy Quran as the mercy for all mankind and the guidance he gave to look after the vulnerable. I remember there used to be a woman, you know, who would throw her own trash on the Holy Prophet peace be upon him. He did. She did many many times. And one day he didn't do that, and he was. I mean, he was. Um, Concerned about that, why is she not throwing her trash onto him, his cloak onto him? And uh, he he asked uh, someone after where, where she lives, and when she when he found out where she lives, he visited her and he saw that she herself was living uh, in a very miserable state as well. She she was ill, and her house was so um, I mean was full with trash, and he cleaned up her house. He looked after you know he looked after that person who actually hated him so much. 
but he still would look after her and make sure that she would get better and well. And then in the end, she's, I mean, she was ill and she survived the illness because the Holy Prophet would look after that person. And this is, this is a very good example that, you know, these people, even those people who hate you, they'd be kind to them as well. To every person in this world, just be kind, smile to them, help them. Make sure that you, uh, everything they have, the desire they need, that you help them to uh, just to be there with them. Mm. And uh, this is very important. Yes, this is Islam. And this is how the Holy Prophet, you know, the life of the Holy Prophet is giving us a very perfect picture of how we can help homeless people as well. That he would, you know, he would give food to everyone. If he, as I said, he wasn't wealthy, even though he was a prophet. He could be wealthy, but the reason is why he wasn't wealthy is because everything he would get, he would give it to other people. Yeah, yeah. He would just keep it for himself. Uh, and this is, you know, um, one, you know, beautiful thing we can learn from this uh, yeah. life of Holy Prophet. Yeah. There are many, many guidance. And even, you know, Mubaris, um, even... We, yeah, member of the Ahmadiyya community, we try to help. Yeah, indeed, to help as well. In fact, following the you know the 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 life of of the Holy Prophet of Islam, um, keeping that in mind, the the uh-huh. Ahmadiyya Muslim community, um, there are there, there's there's the uh, the auxiliary organization for the the ladies, which is called the Legend Amila, right? Um, I mean, they have various um, teams and and volunteers who go around and they um, take food to the to the homeless and they take food to to the homeless shelters and they try to help out. I mean, uh, there's regions all across the 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 local, even the local communities all across the UK that um, try try to participate in this scheme and many many. Um, uh, lady members of the Ahmadi Muslim community, they, you know, they cook from home and they uh, go and distribute the food to their local communities. And it's not just uh, with the the lady auxiliary organization, but there's also the um, the Khudamul Ahmadiyya, which is the auxiliary organization for the for the youth of the of the community. And just for example, um, the the Battle Hassan region, which is um, which is one of the local communities based uh, in London. Based in London, Mitcham. exactly in, in, in Mitcham, yes. Um, they took part in in volunteering at a charity for the for the homeless as well, uh, and they they um, they helped by organising and uh, stocking up on food donated along with the the Felix project, and that was aimed at um, tackling food waste and hunger in London. So, as the the main uh, teaching of Islam is to help those in need. Um, you know, there are people that are trying their best, and shall we should we should you know encourage each other to to go out there and no, if we if we see anyone that's in need, we should always and definitely help them. I mean, exactly. you know, when we're randomly walking and someone asks if 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 we can help them in any way, we should always try to give them something before we say no to them. But as you said. This is one way, or as you call it, from the side of the front of this community, this is one way to come closer to Allah, to closer to God. And everyone 
who wants to come to her god who would do that definitely thank you for the reminding as well for the reminder sorry as well the listeners we will wrap up the first segment and we will go for a short break stay with us because we back after the second for the second segment which is un criticized for poor quality aid to yemen so it's going to be very interesting we have a very interesting guest for that as well so to as well thank you this was from radio persecuted for your beliefs jailed for your faith and exiled from your homeland but you refuse to turn to bitterness or vengeance instead his holiness has emerged as a leader of wisdom and compassion a champion of non-violence among nations no society can truly succeed unless it guarantees the rights of all of its peoples including religious minorities whether they're ahmadiyya muslims in pakistan or bahai in iran or coptic christians in egypt i would like very much to confirm my support for the work that his holiness and the amadi muslim community are doing particularly in london even i didn't know when i was elected then my name even will be proposed the election is the same as the pope is elected but without smoke I know you are a regular uh, visitor and speaker to parliaments and assemblies around the world whether it's the US Congress or the, or the European Parliament. Let it be clear that I am not speaking in support or favor of any particular individual country. What I wish to say is that all forms of cruelty wherever they exist must be eradicated and stopped. regardless of whether they are perpetrated by the people of Palestine the people of Israel or the people of any other country in this we are allied with his holiness a courageous champion of religious freedom and of peace i'm very glad that the movement ayos will do something to correct this image islam means peace i should thank your holiness for your highly enlightened sermon not only for the amadis but i would say for all mankind love for all and hatred for none and this message not only for muslim but for everybody you're a man though of humble beginnings your leadership has made you a figure of global prominence and you have become a guide for millions of muslims worldwide In the name of Allah, the most gracious and merciful, dear listeners, welcome back to the Breakfast Show. You just have listened to a very beautiful audio clip where previous world leaders like Obama and Boris Johnson and the previous Prime Minister of Canada have mentioned about the Ahmadiyya community, about peace and loving community who helps to helps the society to overcome the problems. And of course, what I mentioned about His Holiness. the head of the Ahmadiyya community that he is being there to tell people or giving guidance according to Islam how to maintain peace in the society and indeed he is known as someone as we could call champion of peace but talking about peace unfortunately listeners peace is not everywhere we see war in different parts of this earth unfortunately and one small country is also suffering since 2015 the country of Yemen Uh, we have seen war from the 
as I started in 2015. And until then, unfortunately, it is sad that 233 people, 233,000 people have died with tens of thousands of uh, injured. Now, the UN has been criticized for the poor quality aid. Uh, the first independent evolution of the UN 16 billion humanitarian population humans since 2015, critical of aid that was of unacceptably poor quality. Researchers from the Institute Development Studies were part of the evolution team that acknowledged some positives, but is highly critical of the quality of aid overall and of the bunkerization of UN staff, resulting in a lack of oversight and accurate assessment of need. Now, Dear listeners, as you know, some war is something we don't want to see in this world. We want, we, as a Muslim, I would always say that Islam is the religion of peace, and um, as one attribute of God is salam as well. And a Muslim, as a Muslim, you will always try to get closer to Allah, and you will try to adopt His attributes. So a Muslim would always try to maintain peace and would try to adopt the attribute of Islam as well. Dear listeners. I'm very delighted to tell you that we have now with us Dr. Philip Bodford, who is one of the lead authors of the study research fellow at the Institute of Development Studies and member of the Yemen Interagency Evaluation Team. Uh, Dr. Philip Bodford, good morning and welcome to the Breakfast Show. Thank you. Um, good morning. Dr. Good morning. Dr. Bodford, um, as I just mentioned, the UN has been criticized for the poor quality uh, uh, aid they have provided to Yemen. How comes that it has been so poor, mind that the quality has been so poor? So it's important to say that the UN response in Yemen has overall likely saved lives, especially when it comes to famine and nutrition and mm. sort of maintaining basic services. The issue with quality is related to more sort of infrastructural work, so rebuilding schools, uh, maintaining water systems, uh, providing protection services. That's where we begin to see the poor quality. And the poor quality, it, it can be explained from multiple perspectives. So on the one hand, the UN simply in Yemen does not have that many opportunities due to its own bureaucracy as well as impose limits from the various authorities to get out and look at the schools it's building and look at the water systems it's building. So if you can't see the quality of what's being built, it's very difficult to ensure that it maintains a high standard. So that's one reason. Uh, the other reason is that the crisis in Yemen is what we call a protracted crisis, meaning that it's a sort of a humanitarian emergency that's now lasted around seven years. And the humanitarian system that we have uh, within the international community was never designed to, to, to sort of run a country for so long. It's supposed mm -hmm. to be, you know, a temporary, a temporary emergency. You come in, you save lives, and then okay. after that's done, development specialists come in and then they work with the government to rebuild the country. But what we see in Yemen, in Syria, in DRC, in multiple places around the world now, mm. is that we have emergencies that just go on and on and on, and we're using tools that are no longer fit for the purpose. I see. Interesting. Um, so, about uh, Yemen, um, can you tell us more about the situation of Yemen? How has it changed over the last few years? 
Yeah, sure. So I, I'm, I've mostly been working on the UN response, so I'm not I'm mm-hmm. not going to talk that much about the, the political situation, but I can tell you okay. how the humanitarian situation has changed. So the humanitarian situation in the first instance was, was quite poor. So in, in, in 2015, the United Nations declared the situation in Yemen what's called an L3 emergency, a level three emergency. That's its highest category of uh, a category provided by the Interagency Standing Committee, which is the group of humanitarian agencies. So that's people like UNICEF, UNHCR, the main humanitarian agencies. So when that was declared, they began to ramp up and scale up their operation as quickly as they could. And what we see around the years 2016, 2017, on the basis of statistics provided by the UN, is that malnutrition, um, educational attainment starts to starts to improve, but that's when there was the largest amount of money flowing into the operation. Um, there are some sectors like WASH, which is uh, water and sanitation, that has been very poorly funded and has never really improved. So there's, I, I don't know if you can remember, there was a cholera outbreak in Yemen. That's obviously connected with poor water and sanitation. So, so there are areas where we see little improvement, um, but there are areas where we see around the years 2016, 17, um, even into 18, some improvement in the statistics. But since then, there's been, um, I guess we could call it donor fatigue. So the amount of funding toward, to Yemen has increasingly dried up and been reallocated elsewhere. So this is kind of what we're seeing happening now with the situation in Ukraine is that Money is being re-diverted to, to Ukraine away from Yemen, but the situation in Yemen has not improved. So we are, if the funding dries up, we're going to see a return to high levels of malnutrition. So it was only thanks to um, it was only thanks to huge amounts of money going in, and then WFP, the World Food Programme, transforming that money into just pouring food into the country that they managed to stabilise food prices and prevent a famine. And now with money drying up, there's a real chance that could that could return. And then, of course, at the same time we're, in Yemen, we're witnessing, you know, this is not like Ukraine. This has been going on for seven years now. So we have mm-hmm. lost generations of children who haven't been properly educated. Educational funding is drying up. We have the health system on its knees, where most of the money that's going into Yemen is simply p- pumping fuel into, into hospital generators. It's not repairing equipment. And then the same... The problems that have existed for so long can also be connected to the political situation where Saudi Arabia continues to maintain a blockade over Yemen, which simply slows down the speed at which you can get essential services into the country to save lives and and, and restore people's futures. That's very sad. Um, Dr. Bobo, unfortunately, um, we see that war is happening in very different parts of the, the planet, unfortunately. Is it causing yeah. also a big challenge for you to be there for different countries to help them? So war, war is often a challenge when it comes to security risks in country. So the United Nations in Yemen moves around in armored vehicles. It, it, it lives within um, compounds. But the, the UN typically has um, a special status within various conflicts, it's usually not a target, although we do see now increasingly the UN is a target in the DRC, for instance. But it, the way that the, the UN has thought about Yemen is that it's classified the entire country as either high risk or very mm-hmm. high risk, which means that moving around is really difficult. 
Um, so you have to generally go with a sort of armored, uh, uh, an armored convoy in an armored vehicle. You have to get special, you have to call up uh, Saudi Arabia and ask them not to bomb where you're going for 48 hours, okay. which mm-hmm. all of this causes, all of this can cause a delay. But then, you know, I'm saying all of this to you, but if we look at the statistics for where is it dangerous to work as a humanitarian, Yemen is actually quite low down on the list. So there has, okay. there has been a few, there has been some aid workers killed in frontline situations between the warring parties. But generally, Yemen's actually not so bad um, in comparison to a lot of places in sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, where you get random mm-hmm. violence. There's not that much random violence committed against aid workers from the Yemeni people. Uh, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, while it was once strong, is now relatively weak. Um, so the, the actual like random threat of, of, from the population is low, but the threat from um, a, a, a aerial bombardment is quite high. The threat from getting caught in a frontline situation is quite high. Uh, there is some instances of, of um, carjacking and things like this, but again, it's still relatively low in comparison to other places. So, um, Dr. Bachman, uh, when it comes now to funding or supporting these countries, and you've said that there are a few countries which is very dangerous to go into that because... Yeah. Um, is, is there any, like, uh, are, are there some countries that are more uh, prioritized than others? Yeah, certainly there's, certainly there's shifting priorities because... I mean, the ways that the way in which the funding works is that nation states provide the funding to the UN, which then carries out the operations. So if 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 a country is considered, you know, a higher priority, it gets more funding. So the, so Ukraine is a, considered a higher priority than mm-hmm. Yemen by the British government. For, for example, we see more funding now going to Ukraine than we do to Yemen. Britain's role in Yemen is also, of course, part of the coalition which is engaged in the war itself. So we see all of these contradictions in the way in which the funding is generated. But there are more problems than just the which political, which uh, nation states provide the funding. There's also problems in the sort of nature of the funding itself, where Yemen, as I said earlier, is stuck in a humanitarian mode. So the funding mm-hmm. is for as the funding is for humanitarian work, which has short time, short term uh, turnarounds. So that means you just For instance, if you are looking at a, a water system, so in Aden, in the south of Yemen, there's a, a, a single water reservoir on a mountain that provides water for the entire city. And it was built in the 1950s during the period of British occupation. And that system is still running today, but it's on its last legs. But you cannot mm-hmm. simply, but to, in order to turn that around, to fix it, you need a much longer project duration to get the parts in the engineers, to repair the entire system. So what you end up with is, is this sort of funding that is for short-term projects. So a water pipe bursts, there's water everywhere, it cuts off water to the city, and all you can do is patch it up. You can't actually get to the reason why that pipe keeps exploding. So that's one of the other problems with funding. And that's why in the report, what we advocate for is what we call a protected crisis fund, So that would be a separate body of funding that uh, governments can pay into for situations where you have emergencies that are lasting a long time rather than a humanitarian mode that we believe is not working in protected crisis situations. I understand. And uh, um, do you feel that there's more support needed on the ground? 
and what can we what can be done to make those places more accessible? So I think that one way in which you can make areas in Yemen more accessible is when mm. what we advocate for in the report is that the United Nations needs to reset its relationship with the political authorities. So okay. the, the simple fact in Yemen is that the Houthis in the north are in, are control a huge part of the territory. 70% of the population in Yemen lives in the north of the country. The remainder lives in the south, which is controlled by what's called the IRG, but in reality, of course, the IRG is not necessarily an entity. It's multiple factions that compete with each other with different alliances to Qatar and to Saudi and places like this. So you have multi-fronted proxy conflict. But in the north, there is a, 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 an authority in charge that, that, who are the Houthis, and the Houthis don't necessarily have a good relationship with the UN. The Houthis are not recognized as a legitimate government, but nonetheless, mm. they control the territory. So that places the UN in a difficult situation where it cannot engage with them as if they are the official representatives of the country, yet nonetheless they control that territory. So there has to be ways in which you can build trust while not necessarily breaking the political agreements, but build trust with the people who are by virtue in charge of that territory so they allow you out and to go and view projects. But also the UN has to also want to go out and view projects so, for example, if, if we put the UN to one side and we look at the role of, for instance, the Red Crescent in, in Yemen or IRC or other um, international uh, NGOs, they often have actually much greater access than the UN. Because one of the things that they do is they do not overpromise and they deliver what they promise. So the UN will often overpromise. They'll say, we're going to fix this entire sewage system, and then they come in and the sewage system doesn't work and there's raw sewage everywhere and kids are getting bitten by mosquitoes and worms are getting mm. laid under their skin and all of this stuff. And the UN promises and then it doesn't deliver. But other NGOs will say, this is what we'll do and we'll do it. And then that's it. You know, they, they're, they're honest with what they can achieve and they get respect for doing that and they get access that, that, the, NG, that the UN doesn't have. But of course, even when I say that, we have to remember that INGOs have a different kind of political setup or relationship uh, with the countries they're operating in. The UN is much more, has a, the UN has a political side and it has a humanitarian side, which can also often cause this conflict. I understand. I understand. Um, Dr. Bradford, just one last question. Um, Go ahead. How can, we, how can we create a list for support that is helpful and useful? So I would say if, if, if you want to um, help with the situation in Yemen, one of the best organizations you can donate to is the Red Crescent. The mm -hmm. Red Crescent does some, some, of the, some of the best sort of uh, immediate, um, the ICRC does some of the best you know, immediate aid and assistance in country. If you want to see your money go far and get out and assist people, those are probably that's probably one of the best organizations to donate to and they have got a, a, a Yemen uh, humanitarian appeal so I would I would suggest um, I would suggest uh, supporting them and then mm -hmm. I would also suggest lobbying your MPs and asking them to keep raising Yemen on the agenda in Parliament that is also a good step because we want our we want our members of Parliament to be pushing for a, a, a peaceful resolution in Yemen to support the current ceasefire 
to, and then we also should be encouraging our government to cease its role as an active member in that war, supplying weapons and supplying intelligence to the to to, to the Saudis who are one of the belligerents. The, the UK should not be playing a role in this war. This war has achieved very little other than huge amounts of human suffering. Yeah, you're right. This is you're right with that. Um, Dr. Bolivar, uh, thank you for joining the breakfast show. I see that. Even you are risking your life for these people. And uh, so therefore, I pray for you and for your colleagues as well. May God protect you always. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank goodbye. you, and Goodbye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. So, dear listeners, you just listened to Dr. Philip Broadfoot and about just the state of Yemen because of the war which started you know, seven years ago. And as he has, as he has mentioned, in, in the end, it is just that we see, the only thing we see is that people are suffering and uh, uh, people are losing their lives as well, which is very sad. And um, especially about what we know is that those people who suffer the most are, of course, the most vulnerable groups, like women, children, elderly, and people with disabilities. And uh, for instance, we have seen that women are still deprived of the most basic rights of safety and dignity because protection is not at the center of the humanitarian response in Yemen. In the future, vulnerable groups must be put at the heart of all humanitarian programs. Now, um, oh, if we come back to that uh, poor quality of aid in Yemen, oh, it is found the quality of humanitarian aid in many areas is unacceptably low, with substandard construction and supplies that were faulty or inappropriate. Now, widespread examples included camps for intentionally displaced people with no toilet, roads left half-finished, agricultural equipment supplied, and new schools badly built. Hospital equipment also did not work or could not be used. For example, expensive x-ray machines left idle because no ink was available to print the image. So this is one just few examples I've just uh, presented in front of you, the listeners. But the listeners, as I said before, and we have played the clip as well, the head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, he is known as the champion of peace, and he has traveled many, many countries as well, too many, many countries, and he has given the opportunity to speak in many, many parliaments as well. He spoke in the British parliament, in the EU parliament, in the German parliament, also in the Canadian parliament, etc. And in this parliament, he always the main topic was peace. And how he has described peace and how he has given us a way to maintain peace was through the teachings of the Holy Quran. And um, it is, of course, the Holy Quran who, who always tells us to stay with the people who are oppressed and to help them. And to help maintain peace in the society. Um, Islam teaches us that the upper hand is better than the lower hand and to help those in need. Now, repeatedly, the Holy Quran was inst- has instructed Muslims to help and aid those who are vulnerable or in need, irrespective of the caste, creed, or color. And furthermore, there are countless traditions of, and sayings of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that illustrate how he spent his entire life serving mankind and striving to inculcate the same spirit of sympathy for others within his followers. Now certainly the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be 
was an everlasting source of mercy for mankind. And through his blessed words and deeds, he shone an illuminating and everlasting light upon the magnificent teachings of Islam and demonstrated that serving mankind is an inherent and truly fundamental part of all faith. Wally Buffett said that if you etiquette and conduct are good, then people will appreciate you and you may consider that you have contributed positively to society. Otherwise, we have no desire for recognition or reward except from Allah. Increasingly, as I have said, external organization and even certain government agencies have recognized and appreciated the efforts of humanity first, which testifies to the beneficial works conducted. It reflects that the, the, uh, reflects the fact that humanity first has earnestly strived to fulfill the noble objective which Allah the Almighty has commanded us to pursue in the Holy Quran and which ought to be the lifelong objective of a Muslim, to serve humanity and to fulfill the needs of those who are facing in any adversity. And this is the listeners. This is the life of the Holy Prophet, peace upon him. This was the life of the Holy Prophet, peace upon him as well. I remember that one day, um, Abu Sufyan, one of his companions, came. At that time, at that moment, when he come, came to visit him from Mecca to Medina, at that time, in that moment, he was not his companion. He, in fact, he was his enemy. And... Um, he asked for food for house because in that time Makkah was going to a very tough t- uh, t- uh, um, timing was going to tough timings as well and uh, these people in Makkah who were basically the enemy of Islam they were suffering because of this tough timing no food, no water, no nothing and t- to overcome these things Abu Sufyan thought the only person who will help us, the only person who never, never said no to anyone, will be the Holy Prophet priest upon him. So he went to his enemy and he asked him to help. And the Holy Prophet peace upon him, knowing that he is his enemy and he has started even he even launched a war against him and he will surely come again and will launch another war. He without hesitating called his companion and said, gather some fruit together and give it to Abu Sufyan, so he can give it to his people in Makkah. I remember again, people in Makkah at that time were the fierce enemy of Islam. So Islam has always been a religion of peace, and Islam has always told us that you should look after your fellow human being. It doesn't matter if he's your enemy or friend. The only thing we have to do is follow the commandment of the Holy Quran, which is to serve humanity. And moreover, Allah the Almighty and His Messenger has instructed Muslims to seek to alleviate the pain of those who are suffering from ill health, to provide them with medical treatment, to tenderly care of them, and to regularly inquire after their health. Now, in this regard, um, the Holy Prophet said, Whoever visit a sick person for the sake of Allah, a heavenly call of announce, may every step be blessed and may you be rewarded with an important paradise. Not only has the Holy Prophet instructed Muslims to provide relief and treatment to those who are unwell, but he also given the glad tidings that those who make heartfelt efforts to care for the sick will be rewarded in the hereafter. Consequently, consequently, those who spend out of which Allah the Almighty had provided them to build hospitals and clinics or to provide health care are those who are actually building their homes in paradise. Now, you can see, dear listeners, 
if we look into the Islamic teachings, if we look in the life of the early Prophet, it is a reminder for us that we should look after everyone and we should take care that they are living healthy, that they are living peacefully without suffering as well. Um, it is important that for every, for every society that we live in a peaceful society, that we look after each other. The only prophet peace upon him, he would make sure that even his neighbors are living peacefully. And he said that those neighbors who are not living peacefully, that particular Muslim people are not considered as Muslims. And he also said that make sure that you provide food to your neighbors as well. And this is where, you know, where society starts, this is where you, first we look after the neighbors and then after the needy people to make sure that they are living in very good conditions as well. The, as I said, the Holy Prophet, peace upon him, was a man who was known for his generosity, who would give to people in need all the time. And this is what he instructed to his companions as well, to do the same as well. Um, I just want, because I'm coming, because we're reaching the end of the show, the listeners, uh, an advice I want to give you is, as well, there's an advice which was given basically from His Holiness, may God strengthen his hand. He explained to those who work in humanity first, which is again, um, the charity by the, run by the Ahmadiyya community, that always the primary focus and desire of every member of humanity first should be to serve the interest of the weakest member of society rather than to serve their own self-interest in any way whatsoever. Rest assured that if you serve Allah's creation selflessly and for his sake alone, then surely he will reward you in this world and in the hereafter. The fact to humanity first, it administratively independent of our religious administration ensures no one can question our motivation or suggest that we gain some religious benefit or other advantage through our humanitarian service. And uh, this is why, you know, this is the Islamic religion, this is why Islam fits in an every society. It's Islam is explaining us that we need to look after everyone. We need to make sure that everyone is living a very healthy life as well. The suffering we see nowadays in uh, Islam, oh, sorry, the suffering we see nowadays in the world, in different parts of the world, unfortunately. It's very sad, and it is something we need to understand why this is happening. I believe, and this is something that also many, many times I said, that we should look after each other and we should recognize that one God who has taught us many, many ways how to help people uh, or to how to look after these people and uh, it doesn't matter if they are Muslim or not just one example how the Holy Prophet might show that his companions would look after each other and after fellow human beings is that when Islam expanded into other countries and when religious tribes, uh, sorry Christian tribes for example or Christian areas came into the Islamic countries or or into the Islamic boundaries. The Holy, Prophet, the Holy Prophet would advise his companions that now, if they are living into the Islamic boundaries, we need to look after their needs and we need to fulfill them. Instead, that every Muslim should look after church 
the synagogues, after the temples, after any place of worship. And he also said that to safeguard any needs or any desires of any persons, different religions or from different backgrounds. He also said that make sure that you fulfill the desires of any priest, monk, etc. as well. And this is how Islam actually expressed the true picture to the world. And this is the true picture of what we, what the Ahmadiyya Muslim community is also trying to show to the world as well, dear listeners. As I said, we have one um, charity uh, organization, it's called Humanity First, where you can contribute as well, where you can help the people who are oppressed. But, and as, especially in these very difficult times, as I said, war is unfortunately happening in very, many countries as well. We as human beings, we need to come together. And again, one best way to do so is to recognize the Creator. If you recognize Allah, and if you have the love for Allah and the sympathy for Allah, then of course we have also the sympathy for His creation. Therefore, dear listeners, a good way to recognize Allah or to recognize His God is, of course, to educate what Islam Radio is doing. So, so if you like the show today, you can listen to the show again on SoundCloud. Um, dear listeners, I'm very grateful that you've been part of the show as well, that you listen to the show. I hope you enjoyed the show. Um, I'm very grateful to our researchers, Barira, Hanya, Zoya, and Muki Khan. And of course, to our producer, Arfa. Uh, dear listeners, thank you again. And uh, peace and blessings. I will be with you all.